Did you see that Xi and uh, Putin are going to meet next week? No, I didn't see that. Face to face. There you go. Good for business. Got to get the op-ed out. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cheap Talk, Season 3. My name is Jeff Kaplow. I'm an assistant professor of government here at William & Mary. And joining me, as always, is my esteemed colleague, Marcus Holmes. Hello, Marcus. Hi, Jeff. How you doing? I'm doing well. Welcome back to, to Cheap Talk. It's been a little while. I know. Did you have a nice break between season two and season three? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was just sitting around waiting for waiting for the next podcast episode. So I've been in, I've been in prep mode. I yeah, got notes right. up to here. I'm ready to go. I got all kinds of different things that I want to get off my chest. Let's do it. Excellent. Let's do it. So um, when we last spoke, it was a very special episode of, of Cheap Talk um, to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And uh, we talked about our expectations. We talked about, first of all, how you blew the prediction of whether this war would occur in the first place. I think that's important to, to reemphasize now. Um, but then I we did. talked about our, our kind of assessments of where things were and where things are going. And I have to say, just before we get into a more in-depth discussion of stuff, uh, I was very wrong, uh, very wrong about how, I, how this war has gone, how I thought it was going to go. Um, so I predicted that this would be a fairly quick, um, fairly quick conflict and that um, Ukraine didn't stand much of a chance. And uh, I was very wrong about that. Um, Ukraine has kind of performed um, well beyond my expectations, at least. And I think beyond the expectations of most analysts who who cover the region. Um, and there are a number of reasons for that that, that we may want to get into at some point. Um, but I think it's, it's worth saying like that this conflict seems like it's uh, here to stay for some time. And so it might be time for us to kind of think about why we got into this conflict with now that we have the benefit of a six months or so of, of hindsight, uh, why this conflict happened and maybe what it means when we think about IR and international affairs more generally. Um, so maybe we can kick off by talking about where this conflict came from. Why did it happen? We, we discussed this a little bit last time for our, for our continuing listeners, um, but it, maybe it's worth thinking now that we have a little bit of perspective, um, were our initial assessments of this right or wrong? What really drove this conflict? Right. And before we begin, I think I just want to say that I completely agree with you. I, at the outset of this conflict, I thought, uh, I think like most people, that this was going to be relatively quick. I mean, I remember watching the news like within that first week and people were saying, you know, Kiev is, is going to be like under fire soon. You know, this is going to be uh, incredibly dangerous. They're just going to you know, essentially roll in there. Um, and it looked with, you know, in the first few hours of the conflict, it kind of seemed like that's what was happening. But then very quickly, you started to get these reports of, you know, Ukrainian military and civilians uh, basically overperforming expectations. And that that wasn't a blip. I mean, that that continued and it continues to this day. And I think to the shock of many observers, analysts and potentially Russia, too, that this is just not something that that is going to go uh, particularly easy for you. And I so I totally agree. I think we're in for the long haul with this. Um, which is a sort of double-edged sword. It's like it's it's fortunate in the sense that you know it's it's Ukraine is is standing up for themselves and they're able to to fight uh, and they're they're overperforming. It's sad, obviously, in that the longer this goes on, it just means more you know more violence, more death, and and that part that part's terrible. Yeah, and I should interject here too to just to echo that point. I mean, when I say something like you know Ukraine has performed better than I expected, it, it's a kind of antiseptic. Uh, removed way of looking at what is for people involved an absolutely horrible situation, and so when we talk about the conflict in that way, and I, I suspect we'll slip back into that level of abstraction as we talk about it in the future, 
we do not mean to gloss over the human cost of something like this and how, you know, it, it's truly horrific it is to, to be in, involved in the conflict as a civilian and even on, on the side of, of some of these soldiers who are who are involved in the fighting. Right. Now, getting back to the question you, you asked is, you know, sort of what, what caused all this? And do we know now, looking back six months later, you know, do we have any sort of more clarity on, on the reasoning? And I actually, I'm not so sure that we do. I mean, it's one of these strange situations where uh, a lot of the, the, the thoughts that folks had about the initial invasion um, are basically the same thoughts that they continue to have, I think, for the most part. In other words, I'm not sure that the military aspect, the fighting itself, the violence, the, the level of, um, you know, Ukraine being able to, to withstand a lot of the onslaught. I'm not sure that stuff really tells us a whole lot about the origins of this and, and why they did it. But I do think there's a couple of things that we can learn. So, I mean, just, just to give this sort of broad overview of how I'm looking at this, I think as with many conflicts, there's sort of two main ways to understand what, what might be happening here. And it, it sort of boils down to what you think is going on inside the head of, of Putin and, you know, Russian decision makers. One sort of perspective on this is that uh, Russia looks out at the world and they see a Western alliance in NATO that over time has grown uh, considerably larger, both in terms of the number of countries that have joined that alliance, uh, but also in terms of the countries that have joined that alliance, how much you know arms they're building up uh, and where the troops are and things like that. They also see uh, what they perceive to be as Western kind of meddling in, in Ukraine. So training of troops, uh, basically trying to have some control over, you know, economics and, and trade talks with the EU and so forth. And they look at this and they say, uh, this is a little bit threatening to us, right? We don't like the idea of having a Western alliance, which remember was created uh, specifically to, to balance against the Warsaw Pact, to balance against the Soviet Union, essentially. And so for the thinking of, of somebody like Putin, not a lot has changed in sort of the reason that NATO uh, exists. It was created to basically balance against, against Russia, Soviet Union. And so from this perspective, uh, one thing that you might, might think is NATO's expansion over time and sort of increasingly encroaching onto uh, Russia's borders and Russia's backyard pre presents a legitimate security threat to Russia. And so if you're Russia... Uh, you don't take at face value the arguments that NATO is making, which is we're a defensive organization. There's no way we would ever you know, have a first strike against you. We're just here for, for defense. What you see are missiles and tanks and, you know, uh, countries that are aligned with something that ostensibly is against you. And so that can be a little threatening. And so I think there's one school of thought in international relations that looks at this conflict as being essentially Russia uh, is, is on the defensive they want to show that they are not going to be taken over uh, lightly. They want to expand the sort of area between NATO uh, and Russia. And it just so happens that one of those places that they can expand that is, is Ukraine, because Ukraine essentially sits between the two, between NATO and, and, and Russia. And so this line of argument uh, has been around since, you know, not just the, the more recent invasion six months ago, but also back in 2014 with, with Crimea. Uh, basically saying that a lot of this is about Russia's insecurity in the international system. Uh, NATO expansion from this perspective might be fueling those feelings of insecurity. And one of the things that I think is really important to understand here is, is there's this tendency among individuals, policymakers, even states potentially, to have what I talk about as, as a sort of peaceful uh, self-image, right? So, so NATO and the United States 
Uh, to us, it's very obvious that this is just defensive in nature. Like, we don't have any offensive aims against Russia. Uh, NATO doesn't exist to take over countries. They exist to sort of prevent war, right? And it's all noble, noble ideas. But from the Russian perspective, it's, it's, it's more difficult to understand why they would see it that way, right? From Russia's perspective, they look at what NATO is, and they don't have that same peaceful, you know, uh, NATO self-image. They have the opposite image, which is this is something that is potentially threatening to us. So I think for U.S. Uh, citizens and policymakers, it can be often very difficult to see this from the Russian perspective because we have this kind of idea that NATO represents this, this peaceful uh, organization. But Marcus, does reality play any role in this theory? I mean, like, clearly, Russia is the aggressor here. Is this like the, the victim-blaming theory of international relations, where it's somehow Ukraine's fault that it wanted to have a relationship with the West, and so they brought on this this invasion from, from Russia? You know, it may be that I'm in my Western mindset, and Russia's in its own mindset, but there is an objective reality that one of these groups is been continually aggressive toward its neighbors, and one of them hasn't. And one of them has invaded its neighbors repeatedly, and one of them hasn't. And so at some point, you know, it's fine to say, oh, well, they're, Russia's thinking like Russia, but like, they might just be wrong. Am I, am I missing it? No, I don't think you're missing it. I mean, I think clearly anybody who is, who is looking at this objectively will come to the conclusion I think you have, which is that there is one side that's being uh, uh, the aggressor in the sense of invading, invading other countries. But I do think it's important to, to ask the question of where that aggression might be coming from, right? So this is where I think these two things are, are not there, – there's a little bit of distance between the two ideas. You might think to yourself, I have a lot of insecurity uh, given the situation that I find myself in the world. And the question is then what do you do about it? Now, I think you and I would agree that the idea that invading Ukraine – is somehow going to make you more secure is foolish. I don't think that, and this is played out, right? Because when, when the minute Russia invades Ukraine, what happens? NATO doesn't say, oh, okay, okay, we see you're serious now, so we're going we're gonna to back down, we're going to kick all these countries out. No, no, no. It was the opposite. NATO actually got strengthened. They affirmed their commitment uh, to security. They bolstered arms in, in NATO countries. They moved more troops closer to Russia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So if the idea was we're going to show NATO that we're serious, by invading Ukraine with the hopes that we're going to weaken NATO, that obviously was did not happen, and that was and that was wrong. So I think you're absolutely right. There's no sense in which this is at all an excuse for what uh, Russia is doing. No sense in which this is you know sort of uh, trying to to do victim blaming or anything else. But I do think it's a legitimate question to ask. If you're in a situation where you're insecure, aggression actually becomes one of your strategies, right? Because you say to yourself like, well, I got to do something. Like if you're if you're being encroached upon and you feel insecure, you could you could do nothing and wait and see what happens, or you could take some aggressive action in the hopes that it would it would further your security interests. I think in this case it's pretty obvious that that did not happen, but I do think it's it's a legitimate question to ask where this aggression might be coming from. But I will say, what I explained was one way of looking at it, right? So this is the idea that Russia has these sort of defensive intentions and they basically just want to be secure. There's another set of, of scholars and analysts who think that this has absolutely nothing to do with it. And in fact, all this does is provide an excuse. So all the things that I just, I just said, Putin is looking at and saying, you know what, Professor Holmes, I like that a lot. I like that idea that you're giving me. You know why? Because I can use that to my advantage. I can use this as an excuse to go invade Ukraine. And I think that's kind of what you're, what you're getting at in your, 
in your question, Jeff. And I think that's legitimate. I think that's that's fair. I do think that uh, one of the, the criticisms that somebody like uh, John Mearsheimer has gotten is regardless of what you think about his theory from an analytical perspective, it does, unfortunately, provide an excuse for the party who feels like they are aggrieved because you're basically giving them the argument for why they should feel aggrieved, right? And so if you're somebody like Putin who wants to use that to his advantage, he can do that. So in other words, there's another group of people out there that think that this is very little to do with, with NATO, very little to do with uh, sort of defense. This is about uh, a leader who wants to either resuscitate the Soviet Union, sort of right the wrongs of, of Gorbachev, somebody who is perceived to have uh, led to the downfall of the Soviet Union, made all these deals with the West, which were, which were silly, shouldn't have done that, et cetera, et cetera. And basically, this is about sort of reclaiming the great uh, uh, Mother Russia, which, you know, for Putin, it has been... Uh, downtrodden over time by the West because the West has had the advantage militarily, economically, etc. since the end of the Cold War around 1990-1991. And so from this perspective, it's not about defense. It's just about trying to get stronger. It's trying to, to you know, accrue more territory, get more land, get more power. And this is, this is a very simple calculus. Putin wants Ukraine because it provides it with more power and more legitimacy and all the other things that, that leaders care about. And at the end, if he can take Ukraine... Then he has something that he can show his people and say, we're, we're back. The, the West didn't win this. We won this. We took it. They wanted it. They lost. We won. And so from this perspective, you, you know, Ukraine is unfortunately a pawn in this kind of chess game where, you know, Russia is trying to, to basically uh, just accrue as much power as they can and, and, and get on with, with things. Going back to my original point, I'm not sure the last six months have really shown us which of these perspectives is is right, or which one has more kind of evidence to support it. I think the one thing we can say is that if the expectation was that this war in Ukraine was going to weaken the Western alliance, that that has not, not played out. And so that was, that was kind of a silly prediction, if that's indeed what the prediction was uh, by Putin. Yeah, well, I think expectations are important when you think about why something like this occurs. And one thing we do know a, a lot better uh, now than we did then is what would be kind of the short-term upshot of this conflict when it comes to perceptions of Russian strength in the world, the outcomes that Russia cares about. So if you want to go back now with the benefit of hindsight and put yourself in Putin's shoes on the eve of this invasion, I think it's worth asking, knowing what he knows now, would he go through with this conflict? And if the answer to that is no, then one thing we might be able to point to as a possible cause of this conflict is a mistake, is uh, uh, the fact that Putin seems to maybe have been either misled or not have gotten the right understanding of what this conflict would look like. And we can talk about, you know, why the conflict has played out the way it has. And there's a, a big debate in, in my little military analysis world about, about whether this is due to the, the Russia's kind of poor performance relative to expectations, whether that's due to a bad plan, that is bad political leadership and bad political objectives, or uh, bad military um, and maybe both of the or worse military than we thought they would have. And maybe both of those things factor in to some extent. But uh, when you consider a world in which Putin has sufficient forethought to understand what things would look like in six months after this invasion, and if he was right about that, would he go forward? Um, so there are a couple of kind of IR theoretical traditions that tie into this question. One of those is uh, kind of war due to misestimation or due to mistake. Um, and this is associated with Robert Jervis and others. Uh, maybe 
had he known what he what he knows now, he wouldn't have done it, right? That he made a mistake in his calculation. And there's another uh, there's another kind of theoretical tradition that ties into this that says, well, that's all well and good that he that he made this mistake, but then the question would be, why did he make a mistake? What led to that mistake in the first place? And if it was kind of a misunderstanding of what the other side's capabilities were, that is, Putin thought Ukraine would fold quickly and it didn't. Um, then what led to that misunderstanding? And so bargaining framework kind of leads us to ask this question, why couldn't these parties have come together to share information sufficiently to avoid war? Why wasn't it possible for Ukraine to signal its resolve and its strength and its allies to signal their commitment to the defense of Ukraine, despite many, many attempts from the United States to signal just that, right? And we can talk about how in the run-up to the war, uh, the Biden administration pulled out all the stops to send a signal to Russia that they would have Ukraine's back to the extent that they could, and that there would be aid forthcoming to Ukraine if it got involved in this conflict. Why didn't that, uh, why wasn't that enough to convince Putin to uh, make a different policy decision there? So I think with, with that idea, we have kind of the, the big schools of, of IR theory kind of on the table. Yeah. So let me, let me, um, you're not going to talk about bargaining in this class until like, you know, May. May. When, when does the class end? December. <laughs> this whole May. What's this? What semester is this? Was it fall? Was it October? Um. I mean, do you buy that as like like a framework for thinking? I'm sorry. I don't. I'm sorry to interrupt, Marcus. But do you like? No, no. Actually, I, yeah. I was going to say. I, I actually think that that is a uh, that is a framework for thinking about like what what happened here, right? It was this a mistake, and if it was a mistake, what caused that mistake? Uh, and if it wasn't a mistake, like why? Conceivably, like, why is Putin so willing to pay such a high cost, right? Because if, if, he, if you think you, that he knew that this was going to happen, I find that hard to believe, but let's say he did. Figure this is going to be a long, this is going to be a three-year war, four-year war. Uh, it's going to look something like Syria or whatever. Um, why, why the willingness to pay such a high cost, I think, is a very interesting question. I mean, that would imply that this means, like, a lot to Putin. And then the question because why? Like, why, would you, why are you going to pay these costs for, for Ukraine? Like, what is so vital to you? Uh, about having Ukraine, which I, I actually don't think we have great answers to. I mean, we have these you know, sort of geographic answers that provides this buffer, et cetera. You can make economic arguments. Maybe there's symbolism. I think this is probably where you know, the constructivism point would come in. But it, it maybe you think that he actually believes that he's protecting Russian, you know, ethnic Russians living in Ukraine. All kinds of different ideas here. But it's not clear to me that if this was not a mistake, uh, why he would be willing to pay such high costs. Now, part of the issue also is that, you know, you, you have these these other psychological factors, which is that once you go down the road to something like this, it's very hard to then pull pull back. I think one of the, the weird things about this particular conflict is that back in 2014, Putin did stop. And he took Crimea. He could have been much more aggressive. He could have been much more risk accepting, but he wasn't. And so I think for a lot of uh, analysts looking at this, they thought something similar might happen here. Uh, where, you know, he, he goes in and he takes a small piece or small, smallish piece of, of Ukraine um, and would be happy with that because that's that would sort of, you know, kind of follow in line with what he did in 2014. And for a while, in the first couple of weeks of the uh, the conflict, that's exactly what we thought was going to happen. So I remember thinking about, you know, the negotiation that was going to take place about the Donbass or whatever. It's like, OK, what is the land that Zelensky's going to give up uh, to end this war? Like, what is that settlement going to look like? But that didn't happen. And so, so it's either he's become much more sort of risk accepting over time and is willing to, to, to pay these costs, or alternately what's happened is 
he it, it we're in this sort of sunk cost fallacy where he doesn't want to give up now because he's he's sort of invested all this time and energy and money and soldiers and all the rest of it into this conflict and he wants to to see it through regardless of how we look at that though this is this is very uh, perplexing the last thing i'll say about this also if it is a mistake and so on the eve of the war you know he really thought that this was going to be quick and and like we did and he was going to be able to 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 sort of get what he wanted very quickly why was that mistake made? And you alluded to this. I mean, maybe he was given bad information. Maybe this is just, you know, his ego. Uh, maybe it was a, it was a irrational moment where he just, you know, for whatever reason, just didn't didn't think things through. But given Russia's history in places like Syria and, and elsewhere over time, you would think that that he would have a sense, and his generals would have a sense of what might be in store. Especially considering the point that you made, which is that the West had been in the lead up to this, saying we are going to take this seriously. Don't do this. There are going to be major ramifications if you do. And maybe one of the things they discounted was the Ukrainian resistance part of that. They thought, okay, the U.S. is going to do their sanctions. You know, the EU is going to do sanctions. But surely the Ukrainians are not going to be able to fight. And, they, they, you know, that was the mistake at the end of the day. Yeah, and I, I think just on that question of was it a mistake or, or not, or, the, or did, did Putin kind of go in thinking that this is what's going to happen? I think we have pretty significant evidence that the— Russian leadership thought, thought this would be quick um, and thought that a quick grab for Kiev would be effective. And the war plan reflects that, right? That the, the, the way the initial invasion was structured, where uh, forces were sent in without sufficient support, it, it had this kind of feeling of a, of a rush to the capital where the, you know, the gov Ukrainian government could be uh, toppled and the rest of the country left alone. And this could be kind of this decapitation maneuver where now we can make Ukraine into a puppet state and we don't have to bear the expense of this big war. And then when that initial invasion plan failed, there's kind of been a retooling and a, for a more long, drawn-out conflict. But on the question, on the purely factual question, like, is this what Putin thought would happen? I think we have some significant evidence to suggest, no, this is not. Um, and so then that leads down that, that road that you were mentioning you know, now that we know what did happen, why is it that Putin was wrong about that? You know, there's the signaling story, but there's also the story about uh, dictators who live in a bubble and uh, where the military leadership or whoever advisors are kind of afraid to tell like it is, or maybe there's some level of corruption going on. And so uh, military leaders don't want to acknowledge that forces aren't as ready as they should be. And there's a similar story you can tell about um, the 2003 uh, U.S. invasion of Iraq um, on the part of Iraq, where uh, Saddam Hussein, you know, very clearly had the wrong idea about what the U.S. was up to, despite the U.S. very clearly signaling that they were about to invade. I mean, this was not a secret for anyone. When it happened and when uh, the Iraqi forces weren't able to kind of hold off the initial U.S. advance, you know, for the real question is like, how could Saddam have missed this, right? Like, this is obvious to everyone. And so one of the one of the theories about this with some evidence to back it up is that, you know, Saddam was living in a dictator bubble. Nobody wanted to tell him the truth. And, um, you know, he bore the consequences of that. So this this story of of how leaders understand the information that's coming to them is partly colored by um, the political environment that they're in and, and the willingness of advisors to, to speak truth to power. And I mean, it, it's so... This is not a novel point, but I mean, it's so it's so tragic because if Ukraine could have effectively signaled its resolve to such an extent that it breaks through whatever's going on there, whether it's, you know, the leadership being afraid to tell Putin this is going to work, 
or Putin's own idiosyncratic way of looking at the world, whatever, you know, arguably a lot of this could have been avoided. Right? I mean, this is this is one of the 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 true sort of sad parts of international politics where war really often just from a rational perspective need not happen, right? That there is a, there's a, and this, you're the expert in this. You can talk about this and in, in, in my class, we will talk about this soon. You know, there's a, there's a bargaining range in most of these situations. And if you could sit down with the other side and, and say to, you know, express your resolve in such a clear way so that with, there was more information shared on both sides and you kind of knew what you were getting into, then you might decide, hey, maybe it doesn't actually make sense to go to fight this costly war uh, and end up, you know, spending more than we're going to get out of it uh, where a bargain would have been, been possible. But that hinges on the idea of, of resolve and your ability to, to signal that. And one of the reasons why states go to war, and I think this might be part of what's happening here, is to test that resolve. So Putin has uncertainty about Ukraine's resolve. He found out. But before the war started, he didn't know with any certainty. I mean, he might have, you know, the, the military people do with, uh, think they know what they're talking about and they have all this going on. But at the end of the day, you really don't know what a state has until you, you test it, right? And so uh, for Russia, they tested it and they found out and they were, they were wrong. But if we lived in a world where it was easier and more credible to signal the resolve that you have, a lot of these tragic uh, acts of violence, these wars might be, might be avoidable. Yeah, and I think a lot of the kind of theoretical work on the causes of war focuses on this question of how wars begin, but they also have something to say about how wars are prosecuted and what happens during the war. And for the for the bargaining framework that you're referring to, sometimes we talk about this idea of war as a bargaining process that, you know, because you can't break through the uncertainty before the war starts, um, that would adequately signal your resolve or just the strength of your military forces. Sometimes that has to happen in the initial stages of the war. And you learn that, oh, wow, this country was stronger than I thought once you start losing battles. And so you get this, this process by where both states learn as they're going through the initial phases of the conflict. And then their unreasonable expectations are adjusted um, so that they are more in keeping with reality. And that brings you back into the bargaining space where these, these uh, parties can maybe reach a deal. Here, there doesn't seem to be much evidence of that, that the failure of Russia's initial advance didn't seem to lead to this introspection among Russian leadership thinking, well, how can we get out of this? What can we get and how can we get out of this conflict quickly? Instead, it seemed to lead to a new plan, which is a more long drawn out conflict. Can we take the Donbass and hold these kind of fake referendums so that we can kind of exert some political authority over this buffer zone between Russia and, and Ukraine? And that speaks to maybe a different cause of war, not just uncertainty, but maybe a commitment problem where Russia is just worried about the ability of Ukraine to kind of commit to being this neutral party, or at least not in not so closely tied to the West into the future. And so it needs to take steps now while it's involved in the conflict to resolve this. And maybe that means just sitting on a line of control for, for uh, the, the foreseeable future. And this is a strategy that Russia loves, right? Like it has a lot of what we call frozen conflicts um, in the world that Russia is like a key player in. It doesn't mind the fact that these are not settled with peace agreements, right? It's happy to have these military forces arrayed on both sides of a, of a line of control. And uh, Russia feels like that keeps, gives them this buffer zone that they want. So I think this, this question of where do we go next in this conflict has a lot to, to learn from why we had the conflict in the first place. And that's part of what some of these theoretical traditions are trying to help us understand. Couldn't agree more, Jeffrey. Couldn't agree more. 
you know, there's one other aspect that I, I was curious to get your take on. So you're, you're somebody that um, studies nuclear weapons and you specifically study nonproliferation and the, and the, the treaty, nonproliferation treaty. One of the articles that's you know sort of resurfaced is the uh, 1993 foreign affairs piece by you know John Mearsheimer. He basically says that at the end of the Cold War, um, the West wanted Ukraine to get rid of its nuclear weapons as quickly as possible. Uh, that this was ultimately going to be in their interest and the long term security of, of Ukraine be better without nuclear weapons. And he he makes the case in, in 93 that this is wrong. That Ukraine should keep its nuclear weapons. Uh, and, and one of the reasons he gives is that it's a, you know it's a it's a great um, way to to maintain your security. You're unlikely to get invaded uh, if you have a, a nuclear weapon or or several nuclear weapons. And I just wanted to get your take on this as somebody who um, you know is is a nonproliferation expert. I mean, do you have a, a strong uh, theoretical sense of of whether Mearsheimer is right or wrong about this? And uh, and if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, uh, would we have seen what happened in 2014 and then over the last uh, six months? How much time you got? You got a couple hours? Um, I, I yeah, can... you have two two and a half minutes, and then and then we're gonna end. Yeah, I, I can I can talk about this. Uh, <laughs> you can talk about this all day, but I'll make uh, just kind of two general points. First, uh, just a point of fact: you referred to Ukraine giving up its nuclear weapons, but I think that's kind of a misreading of what was really going on in, in those years. So we people talk about this all the time. Oh, Ukraine had nuclear weapons and it it gave them up. And don't they regret that now? But the fact is, Ukraine never had nuclear weapons. Soviet nuclear weapons were in Ukraine at the end of the Cold War. But Ukraine never had operational control over those weapons, nor did they have the capability to do anything with these weapons. Now, with time, had they kind of confiscated those weapons and forced them out of the hands of the of the, the Russian operators who were, who were there watching over them, had they taken those weapons, they could have dismantled them. They could have gotten nuclear material out of those weapons. They could have figured out how to use them, something to do with them. But it wasn't the case that Ukraine like had this ability to launch nuclear weapons the day the Soviet Union fell. And so this question of could they have kept them is a little bit more complicated because it's not like they had them to keep, right? Um, so there's this, there's a kind of a historical question here. How could Ukraine have wrestled control over these nuclear weapons? Now, um, there was a lot of diplomacy trying to kind of put this idea completely off the table and bring Ukraine into this community of, of right-thinking nations who've given up the idea of having a nuclear weapon of their own. And I think from Ukraine's point of view in those days, the value of being part of this community of nations as a new country uh, far surpassed the kind of questionable operational benefit they or questionable benefit they would have gotten from trying to seize operational control of these weapons, um, and that actually had the potential to set off a conflict in, in its in it on its own. So, had Ukraine tried to get the weapons back in the day, it's not clear that wouldn't have kicked off its own conflict about them. Anyway, so putting that aside, let's assume for a moment <laughs> that Ukraine could have somehow managed weapons or developed them on its own. I mean, Russia has accused Ukraine without any evidence of having its own nuclear weapons program today. So, you know, imagine a situation in which Ukraine has nuclear weapons. And the question is, would Russia have gone ahead with this invasion under those circumstances? And I, I guess, to, you know, to answer that, let's think under what circumstances in this war would Ukraine have chosen to use its nuclear weapons? So if, let's imagine a world in which Ukraine had nuclear weapons and Russia went ahead with this. Where in this conflict would the nuclear weapons have come into play? 
And I, I think it's actually a really difficult question to answer because it's not clear to me at all that Ukraine could have used nuclear weapons in this conflict in some kind of reasonable way um, that would have gotten it what it wants. So beyond saying, don't invade or I'll nuke you, right? What does it do? Russia invades. It's got nukes. Ukraine's got nukes. Does it nuke Russia at that point? Well, if it does, I mean, Russia has more nukes than Ukraine, presumably, in this in this uh, kind of fictional universe we're thinking about. At least Russia has sufficient nuclear weapons to nuke Ukraine a couple times over. And so it, does Ukraine want to be the one that precipitates that exchange? And probably not. Maybe it holds on to them and says, well, if Zelensky is unseated, then we use our nukes. That's a tough argument to make. If this leader is unseated, well, we're going to nuke you. Well, what about everyone left in Ukraine, right? Like, like this is not a good answer for them. Because if the, even if the government falls and Russia takes over, it, it, it's easier to make this case if you're North Korea, right? And where, where the leader is the state. But, you're, but if you're in Ukraine, you're the Ukrainian government, your choices are nuke Russia or lose power. If you nuke Russia and Russia nukes back, there go all the Ukrainian people, right? And that's not a good deal. So I, I think it is actually quite difficult to imagine a role for nuclear weapons in this conflict if Ukraine had had them. And I think that then you think back, okay, let's, let's walk that story back to the question of should Ukraine have kept the weapons? What would have happened if Ukraine had a nuclear weapon? And, and I think it probably doesn't affect Putin's calculus because Putin knows that a nuclear exchange is not a good idea from, um, uh, for Ukraine to precipitate. And so it may feel fairly comfortable that it can keep this conflict short of going nuclear if it doesn't strike first. So a couple things. Uh, I, I grant you the historical murkiness. And Mearsheimer does talk about this in the article. He says, you know, it's not obvious that Ukraine, you know, could have kept them and have control of all these. But, he, you know, he's sort of saying, like, let's, let's assume just for a second that they can and, and, and what would happen. Yeah. I guess I'm a little surprised, though, that you don't uh, you're, you're sort of making a case here that nuclear weapons don't actually serve in this particular instance much of a deterrent. Right. Because you're saying that the the don't invade us or we'll nuke you argument doesn't actually work that much. I, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, we, we just talked about, you know, uh, Ukraine's problems and sort of signaling its resolve before the, the, the conflict started. It seems to me, if you know that you're dealing with a nuclear power, the sort of whatever signals are getting sent uh, by, by Ukraine get multiplied by some factor, right? It's sort of like, in addition to us signaling our resolve, you know, sort of conventionally, we also have this backup plan. If things get really bad, we, we have the, the idea, we have the, the notion that we might consider using a nuclear weapon. Now, I agree with you, the likelihood of, of you know, Ukraine using that weapon, given what the potential catastrophic consequences of that would be, are, is very low. But if you're Putin, a very low probability, when the costs are so high, is something that it seems to me needs to be taken uh, seriously. And you combine that with the fact of... of the sort of flimsiness upon which the argument for the necessity of this war being needed in the first place, I think I'm a little bit more optimistic. Uh, this is a weird version of optimism, but a little bit more optimistic that a nuclear weapon would have actually deterred uh, uh, the invasion. It's interesting. I don't know. I was not expecting that answer from you. Well, you know, so I'm 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 a nuclear deterrent skeptic. Like I, I don't actually think that nuclear weapons are particularly useful in most situations. For me, it's always a question of well. You know, what would you do differently if you knew that this country had nuclear weapons versus not? And one thing I think we can point to, without delving too deep into deterrence theory here, is kind of being careful around the prospect of nuclear use. 
and the caution that might engender in leaders facing off a, across a, a battlefield. So it, in the kind of classic Thomas Schelling formulation of nuclear deterrence, it's very difficult to actually threaten to use nuclear weapons because, you know, everyone knows that if you start down that road, everyone is going to be destroyed, right? And so it's in this conception of mutual assured destruction between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, there's this problem. How can you credibly threaten to end the world with your use of nuclear weapons? It doesn't seem to make a lot of rational sense. And so Schelling argues that you can't really make that threat. But what you can do rationally is make threats that leave something to chance. This idea that you can run a higher risk of things escalating out of control, you can credibly do that. And so if you're more resolved than your opponent, if you're Ukraine and you're defending your homeland, then you can say, you know what, I'm going to run a serious risk that this escalates into nuclear use. I'm not necessarily going to launch first, but I'm going to send nuclear armed bombers into the air near the border with Russia where mistakes could be made, where accidents could happen. And that might freak out Russia sufficiently to let them back off. But if they're suitably resolved, maybe they're going to send their own fighter jets up to intercept. And we're going to see whose resolve is greater based on who backs down from this first. So it's not that you can credibly threaten, okay, I'm going to nuke you. You can credibly threaten, hey, I'm going to run a lot of risk here, and this thing could escalate out of control, so you better back off. And, and this idea of caution and kind of being cognizant of the risk of nuclear escalation is the basis of a lot of like Cold War nuclear deterrence theory. And so you can imagine a situation here where Putin, faced with a nuclear-armed neighbor, is much more cautious in his approach generally, and that leads to some kind of either more limited incursion or even avoiding a... a a military standoff at all and trying to find other ways to to resolve Russia's security interests, if that's even part of the story here. So so maybe there's a role there, right? Maybe, maybe there's a world in which that caution leads to an avoidance of conflict. But once you kind of get into the world of, okay, we're at war, it's really, I think it's worth thinking about how difficult it is to find a role for nuclear weapons in either putting an end to that war or, you know, making your threats of nuclear use credible. So in, in your view, when we saw the initial invasion in, in Ukraine and there were some people in the West calling for some type of military response by the United States or, or NATO uh, or the EU or whoever, um, like a no-fly zone or something like that, one of the arguments that got made was like, are you, you know, no, we're never going to do that. That's crazy because Russia has nuclear weapons. And so what your, your perspective seems to be, it, it wasn't the fact that anybody was seriously worried uh, about Russia using nuclear weapons against, let's say, the United States, if the United States were to sort of intervene in this in this conflict, but rather they, that Russia would be able to uh, take more risk. Their their um, they would use the nuclear weapons as a sort of some like a focal point to get to be nervous about, and so that would might limit what the United States was was doing. But the idea is not that Russia would would seriously consider using a nuclear weapon like a first strike against the United States, but rather just having it and uh, showing that we're going to, you know, have airplanes flying around and helicopters and tanks moving would create enough chaos and uncertainty that the United States would be very concerned about some type of mistake happening or some type of misperception, which could lead to some type of nuclear conflict that was not actually intended. Is that is that kind of your your take? Yeah. And I mean, I, I think there are a couple of, of things going on there. One is that um, from the perspective of NATO, 
uh, a military face off of like a like actual shooting war with Russia is really dangerous, right? In the in the risk of nuclear escalation, and, and that's kind of what you're talking about. So it's not that Russia will necessarily you know fire all its nukes at the United States. It's that um, you know these parties are are fighting, and you see something that is misinterpreted by one side or another and things escalate. And next thing you know, there is some kind of a nuclear. So I, uh, I putting aside the practicality of a no-fly zone, which is not practical at all, even had such a thing been practical, it would not have been a good idea based on this idea of kind of uh, the risk of, nu- of escalation, nuclear escalation down the line. And not only that, but like from a non-nuclear perspective, uh, getting NATO involved in this military conflict isn't necessarily a good thing for I mean, people. Um, and for Ukraine, um, in the sense that it allows Russia to take the gloves off even further and go full mobilization because this is now a war with NATO. So there, there, are, there are other factors there. So I, I think that that's, that's one aspect that is this risk of unintentional nuclear escalation. Another problem with Russia is a debate about whether Russia has in its nuclear doctrine allowances for the use of smaller nuclear weapons, what in the business are sometimes called tactical nuclear weapons, um, to signal its resolve. So you don't believe Russia's serious about this. They're going to drop a small nuke on a battalion, and now you know they're serious. And then you're in this situation, well, how do you respond to this kind of thing, right, without nuclear escalation that leads to an exchange of the big strategic nuclear, nuclear weapons that you really want to avoid? So um, the risk of that kind of escalation is also there, in particular with Russia, where there's a debate about whether this, this escalate to de-escalate doctrine, which is what we call it, um, whether that's really a part of Russian thinking. I mean, it, it seems to me, though, that, that a lot of this just gives Russia or any nuclear state uh, kind of a blank check, right? Because it's this like nuclear blackmail idea. It's like we don't for, for whatever reason, either because we're afraid that they're going to strike us or there's going to be a mistake or something like that. It basically says to Russia, we're going to we're going to leave you alone to do what you want to do in Ukraine. Now, I'm talking about militarily. Of course, we did sanctions. There's all kinds of things that we did. Um, but in terms of like a direct intervention to stop an invasion of a of a Western country who happens to be a partner, an ally, not a NATO, but a partner and an ally, uh, we're not going to do that because the state that's doing the invasion has nuclear weapons. There's something really sad about that, you know, because it, it means that that it gives them the ability to just sort of do whatever they want. They know, like you, you're saying, and I'm I'm saying, they know that we're thinking this way, and we they know that we're not going to get involved precisely because. We fear the worst. And because we fear the worst, we're going to allow all of these really bad, terrible things to happen. I don't think that's right. I, I think you're when you say we're not involved, that's just like completely missing the dramatic involvement of the West in this conflict. At the same time that Putin is successfully deterring the United States from sending U.S. forces to Ukraine, which I, I would just put out there would be like a big deal, right? Like this isn't like some some easy mission that we're sending our troops into, right? So so even absent nuclear weapons, there are a lot of reasons you might expect President Biden to hesitate to send U.S. troops on the ground to Ukraine to fight against Russia, okay? But put, putting that aside, let's assume that nuclear weapons are a factor here and Russia is successfully deterring U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. We, NATO, are also successfully deterring Russia, from striking at NATO nations that are supplying like all the ammunition for Ukraine and lots of military supplies and, and armament, right? So like there were concerns when Biden kind of announced these initial policies of providing military equipment to Ukrainian forces and that Europe followed suit that Russia would expand this conflict to strike 
staging areas in Poland and other NATO states. But I think NATO is successfully deterring those kinds of Russian actions. And so we've gotten to the point where we feel, well, we've made the decision initially in this war that this is where we're going to draw the line and we're going to provide as many supplies as we can get in there, as much uh, material as we can get in there. And uh, we're going to trust that our forces are successfully deterring a Russian attack on those supplies, um, at least outside the, the country of Ukraine. And that calculation has seemed to work, despite some skepticism, I will point out, at the beginning of the war by many who said, well, this is going to lead to a wider uh, escalation of the war. The Biden administration stuck with this. This is going to be the line we draw. So there are critics on both sides, right? I mean, people, some people are, were initially saying, I think those voices have died down, that the U.S. is getting way too involved here. This puts us at risk for a wider war, and we shouldn't do it uh, in terms of just providing material. Um, and there are others pushing on the other side that says U.S. should be way more involved. We should have boots on the ground. We should be striking directly at Russian forces in Ukraine. And the kind of line the NATO has decided to draw is we're not going to have boots on the ground, but we are going to do everything else possible to support the Ukrainian uh, troops. But we started this conversation by talking about how, how strong Ukraine has been and how surprising it's been to analysts that Ukraine has been able to withstand uh, this onslaught from Russia, which implies to me if they only had a little bit more help. And I, I, I understand what you're saying about materials, and I understand we're providing support. And by the way, the U.S. and the U.K. have been training uh, Ukrainian soldiers for quite some time. Like, yeah. this is not a new thing. Like, they've been doing it since 2015, 16, whatever. It seems to me that the argument, though, for boots on the ground gets strengthened when you see how much resolve Ukraine has. There's no, there's no doubt it would be costly for the United States to put uh, boots on the ground or for, for NATO countries to get involved in that way. But Given what we've seen with the resistance, it's not as crazy a thought as it might have been six months ago before we knew that the level of, of Ukraine resolve was going to be. It seems to me the costs are less now because we've seen how bad the, the Russian military has been. We've seen how good the, the Ukrainian military strategy has been. If they could get a little bit more help, then it might, might make a difference. Now, I personally think the reason that we're not doing that has to do with the nuclear deterrent. I see what you're saying, but I, I still think that that idea of the nuclear weapon is just floating out there, which makes some of these ideas for the Biden administration, not just, you know, the cost would be too high, but I also think there's an element of, of sort of like, uh, this is where the nuclear taboo kind of thing comes in. It's sort of like, I I'm, I'm find this almost unthinkable that I would, I would attack uh, or in, 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 be in a ground war with a nuclear, nuclear nation, right? It doesn't even, doesn't even really occur to me of, of pursuing that precisely because I'm so worried about the potential for any type of nuclear, uh, either intentional act or, or a mistake. Yeah, and it goes back to this kind of engendering caution thing that I was talking about earlier, that wise countries will, you know, hesitate before getting involved in a military conflict with a country with nuclear weapons, because it has the potential, the potential is always there, that it escalates uh, beyond what anyone wanted. And, you know, we end up with a global thermonuclear war, right, at the end of the world. So, you know, there, there's reason to take a minute and um, like really think through that idea, add that to all the other reasons that we would want to take a minute before we mm -hmm. got into a ground war with, with, with Russia, right? Before we like started bringing troops into Ukraine. Part of this has to do, I, I think, like with the timing of everything, right? And, and this expectation that Ukraine might, might fall fairly quickly. When they didn't, there was a chance to kind of go back and say, okay, what can we do now that we weren't going to do before because we didn't have time for it? Exactly. So some of the training and, and, and the types of forces that we, we now have in Ukraine are only there because Ukraine was able to hold out long enough to get that kind of aid. But there's also this weird 
psychology of escalation that's kind of worth keeping in mind. Um, and Schelling uh, talks a lot about this. How do you perceive this next step? Is this next step escalatory or de-escalatory? And part of it has to do with where you're coming from. What is the status quo? So the status quo now for six-ish months is the U.S. provides as much military supplies as we can, and but doesn't send forces in, at least not significant enough that anyone notices, right, into Ukraine. What happens if the U.S. decided now tomorrow, okay, we're sending some, some troops? I mean, that would be tremendously escalatory, right? Because we're going from this, this status quo where, like, things are kind of holding to this new status quo. We don't know how Russia is going to respond to that, but there's certainly a strong possibility, I would think, that Russia will respond by escalating in turn uh, because this has broken this this line, right, with this kind of agreed-upon line that was only tacit agreement, right? Nobody sat down and planned this out in advance. Here's where we're going to draw the line. Anything beyond that line, too dangerous. This is the line. Nobody did that. So this is all just kind of like tacit approval. You know, Schelling in in uh, one of his books uses this example of if you if you had to meet someone in New York City, you couldn't communicate. This was like pre-cell phone. Um, you, you just knew you were going to New York City. Um, where would you meet them? And he asked about 12 p.m. Central Station, Grand Central Station, right in the yeah. in the center of Grand Central Station that that. And he asked like a bunch of people this. I think Yale College students who travel to Grand Central Station all the time to get to, to get to get to New York uh, from from New Haven. And so that that was the answer. Right. They're all going to meet. No one agreed on this in advance. But that was the kind of most common answer was, well, I would just hang out in the center of Grand Central Station and find my, my friends there. And it's these kinds of like tacit agreements of where the line is um, that are kind of, I think, underappreciated in international relations. You do something now, you change the status quo, that appears very escalatory, even if from if you had done that from the outset, it would have been perceived differently. Yeah, that's fair. Although if I asked somebody on Richmond Road where they would... You know, this is this is like a cultural thing. It's like where you happen to be sure. uh, sort of like socialized into thinking about uh, the, the focal point. But I, I, I see what you're saying. I don't know. And what, I agree. What, I mean, would I th- what would William & Mary students say to that question? Would they meet at the... At Sadler, Sadler Center, 12 o'clock. Yeah. I think Sadler. Yeah. Sadler? Campus Center? Where's Campus Center? That's Jamestown Road? You should do this. You, you, Sadler. I would, I would go... You have like 500 people in your class. Ask them. Maybe I'll poll my students. Maybe a final exam, a final exam question will be... Uh, if you had to beat somebody at William and Mary and didn't know uh, you had not coordinated a, a place or a time, where during the week and when, That's when during the one. week and where yeah. would you would you meet? I think Sadler's Saturday at twelve o'clock. All right. So anyway, Jeff, I I think I agree with a lot. We obviously, as in most of our conversations, there's area of disagreement and agreement. I think I see uh, your point here uh, with the role of nuclear weapons in this conflict. Um, and uh, but it's it's been interesting. Yeah, I think we should come back to the Ukraine-Russia story maybe in a, in a future episode, because I really would like to get to the question of now that we've been through this, now that what do we learn, what, what do we know about what international relations is going to look like in the future based on this experience? How have our expectations for IR, for international affairs changed because of this conflict and the way it's played out? Um, and I think that's like, that's the real important question. Like, what does this mean now? Um, well, much as I love going back in time with you and thinking about why things happened in the past, I'm, I'm more interested in what's going to happen in the future. And so um, I think that's something we should, we should try to revisit. I, I would agree with you, Jeffrey. However, as somebody who's uh, a little bit pessimistic about the ability to predict the future based partially on my own failures of prediction, 
I'm less interested in that question and more interested in the past. But this is obviously an area where we we continue to disagree. Uh, I will say this to, to support your to support your point. I think it would be interesting also as part of that episode to go back. I remember very very uh, uh, concretely listening to analysts and, and IR scholars within the first kind of 24 to 48 hours of the conflict, and a lot of what they say were saying was was very dramatic. Um, and very clear in the sense that, okay, the, the sort of liberal international order that we have come to know and love since the end of the Cold War is basically over. The idea that uh, great power rivalry is like, you know, been sort of put down over time. And now we're in the, just in this globalized world where everybody's trading with everyone and we don't have these rivalries anymore. That's over. We're entering this new period that's going to resemble... Uh, you know, the old days where we have these you know, sort of multipolar system with everybody fighting and we're, you know, the potential for war is, uh, is very high. So there were a lot of predictions that were made in those early days of the conflict. And I would be curious to go back to some of those. And now having had six months to kind of see how this all plays out, do we think that those predictions, you know, still are valid? Do they hold water? Or was there a little bit of, of maybe emotion uh, and drama built into the way that we were assessing this in the early days? And now that things have cooled off a little bit in terms of just time. Uh, we've we've been able to be a little bit more kind of rational uh, about how we see this moving forward. Yeah, I think that's a great thread that we should we should pick up next time. Before we go, I just wanted to put in a plug for um, the ability of our seven podcast listeners to ask us questions directly. If you want to ask us a question, go to www.speakpipe.com slash cheap talk and you can record a message there that we we may or may not play. Uh, play in the podcast and and try to answer, but we're always looking for suggestions about what uh, all seven of our listeners want to hear about. So, Marcus, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure as always. Excellent. See you next time. All right. So, what do we want to talk about today, Jeffrey? Well, whatever you talk about, I want you to hold still. I feel like this is also <laughs> it's also contributing to the sound problem. Like, like you're. You're, I don't do that. Sometimes I don't do like, that. Look, look at me in the mic. No, I can't do that. No, no. Marcus, I see you. It's you're talking you into today. the mic. I can't do that. That's not the way my body operates. Your, your mouth should be like, you know. Don't tell me how inches. my mouth should be. No, 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 no. I, I do me. I, I mean, I have my style, and, and I. It's just you're just gonna have to work with it. I mean, I can't change my my body functions to suit the podcast. It's just you know, not it's so funny, like like we've advanced so far in AI, like we 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 can draw these beautiful are you looking at some of these AI generated images that are bouncing around? They're so amazing. But like we can't fix your stupid voice on this on this podcast. Can't you fix know? my stupid I know. I wish we could. I the, the thing is is if I'm not moving, I'm not thinking. So for the listeners, they want me to be moving. Because if I'm not moving, I'm gonna say just dumb stuff and it's it's gonna be not very insightful. The moving is what provides, and anybody who's been in my classes will know this. I bounce around the room, running back and forth, up and down, not not for any other reason except I need to for my own creative juices to flow. That may explain my lack of contribution to this podcast is I'm just sitting still the whole time. You just sit still. And I, I wish I was like you. I really do. But I can't sit still. Uh, speaking of AI, I have not seen the images that you're talking about. However, I did listen to an album that was produced by an AI whatever computer program that was like a Dave Matthews band, like music. And it's really good. <laughs> like it was basically like they fed the computer, like all of, you know, the, the, all of the stuff that Dave Matthews band has done. And then they were like, go, go create music. And 
it's it's not bad. Like it's there's you you listen to it and knowing it's AI kind of affects things. Like but if somebody had told me like here's a new album from Dave Matthews Band, I would believe it. I would like listen to that and be like, oh my god, like this is this is very good. So the computer is able to do that. It's funny because I think Dave Matthews has been a robot this whole time, and this is, this is, <laughs> this is proof. for the listener. Back in the 1900s, there was a band, well, there still is, but the, the, the band really got going in the 1900s called the Dave Matthews Band. They were very popular in like the mid to late 1990s, you know, Ants Marching, Crush, Crash, etc. Uh, and if you're of our generation, you know, that's a band that most people, they might not have, and they get a lot of hate, you know, but most people, like, at least, you know, for a moment of time, sort of like, it, it would admit that they enjoyed the Dave Matthews Band music. And they had some catchy radio tunes, and, and they weren't, it wasn't like going to a fish concert where every song was like 45 minutes long. You know, they had like some jamming and stuff like that, but but it was also like mainstream for our typical American audience, catchy tunes, nice melodies, you know, it was, they had different, you know, instruments, uh, which it wasn't like, you know, Backstreet Boys, like all this like synthesizer stuff or whatever. They actually were like a band and they played music. Uh, and so... You know, like if you were if you were growing up in the 1990s or even the early 2000s, this is a band that was on your radar. In 2022, I'm not sure many people are paying attention today. Although they are still touring, they were just in the gorge for Labor Day. Yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. I, there's absolutely no way that I went to seven Dave Matthews concerts in the in the late 90s. Um, <laughs> I, it was T Swift all the time from from then until now. <laughs> Only Taylor has my heart. Ah, so. uh, like my daughter. Yeah, Taylor Swift. Yeah. What's not to love? 